Welcome to In the Bible with Jason Worf, recorded at the Bonners Ferry Seventh-day Adventist Church. Open your Bible and let's explore one of the last parables of Jesus. This message is entitled The Garment and is taken from Matthew chapter 22. Have you ever seen a, a really fancy event like the Met Gala or one of these award ceremonies for TV? I'm curious, kids, have you ever seen a lady wearing one of these fancy hats? It's a special special hat that maybe it's a bunch of feathers or maybe it hangs in a certain way. Have you seen those? If you go to one of these ceremonies, you have people all dressed up and, and not a single one is dressed the same. Nobody got their clothes at JCPenney. Nobody is uh, getting something off the shelf. They're having them made special, right? They've got jewelry by Cartier and uh, maybe a custom-made um, gown by Miu Miu. If you're going to go to the Met Gala, then you're going to wear a gown just your own. You're going to wear a suit made just for you for that one event. And how many times do you think you're going to wear that gown or that suit? Probably just once, right? Now, what if you were to go to the Met Gala and you'd spent thousands of dollars on your special gown and, uh, and somebody met you at the door with a gown? It wasn't bad. It was fine. But it was supposed to go over the clothes that you're wearing, completely covering them up. And you looked through the doors and you saw everybody else in there was wearing this exact same thing over their clothes. What would you think? Turn in your Bibles to Matthew 21. And Matthew 21 tells a story. We're going to blaze through it really quick because it's Matthew 22 that I want to spend time on. But these are the beginning of the last parables of Jesus. In Matthew 21, Jesus enters Jerusalem and he tells his disciples to go get him a, a donkey, the colt of a donkey. He's going to come into Jerusalem like a peaceful king. Not a conquering king with, with an army behind him, but a peaceful transition of power. That's kind of what he's doing, like, I'm the king. And uh, so he, he has them go get this donkey, and he, he rides into town. The people are starting to catch on to what he's doing, and, and they're interacting with him. They're throwing their, their coats on the ground. They're waving palm branches, and they're, they're saying uh, wonderful things about him, um, blessed blessings to him as, as the son of David, they call him. And, and the people that meet him at the, at the gate... They're like, what's going on? And all these people that are leading him in and into the, the city there um, are like, this is Jesus, the son of David. And, and the implication of what they're saying is this is the Messiah. Everybody knows when they say the son of David that they're saying this is the Messiah. Uh, and the priests are horrified. They hate this idea. And shortly after that, he goes into the temple. And you know what he does? He sees all these people that are um, exchanging money. Basically, they, in order for them to pay for a sacrifice, which they had to buy, they couldn't bring in their, their own, um, they, they had to exchange their regular money for temple money. And every time you exchanged a regular dollar for a temple dollar, you had to pay 10 cents, right? So it was $1.10 for only a dollar, or maybe it was $1.50 for only a dollar. They were making money on the exchange. And when you bought a pigeon or a, a lamb, it wasn't just, you know, the $5 it would cost you outside. It was... It was $15 for the lamb in the temple because these were blessed. These were kosher lambs or kosher pigeons. And it became really difficult for people to do what God had asked them to do in bringing a sacrifice to the Lord. And so Jesus, he threw over the money changers' tables. He knocked down all of the, the things that would protect or hold the animals in place. And so there's animals running around and he, he takes a, a whip and he drives out the, the merchants and all these people that are making money off of worship. And he says, don't make my father's house a house of merchandise. My father's house should be called a house of prayer. And you know that he's not a mean, awful guy, because as soon as he's done this, and all these people have run away in fear, the people that really should be afraid, or usually are afraid, I should say, 
weren't afraid of Jesus. The children ran up to, to him and jumped in his lap. And the, the uh, people that were maybe poor or crippled or something, they came to Jesus. He drew them to them. And it was probably because he was protecting them from all these awful people that were trying to suck them dry of every penny that they had just so that they could follow God in obedience. Do you think that the priests and the Levites and the, and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all these religious leaders, do you think they liked when Jesus did that? No, they did not like it. And, uh, and then he, he left that night. So that was Sunday, by the way. Sunday night, he stays probably with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And, uh, and then the next morning, he comes back. And the Bible says that he was hungry, which means that maybe Martha had taken him too seriously when he had talked to her about not being too much in the, in the kitchen and had to sit at his feet and listen because she hadn't fed him that morning, apparently, or he was just hungry for a snack. So he, he comes up to a fig tree. And something that you need to know about fig trees is that they put on their, their fruit before their leaves. And so when you see a fig tree that, that's fully developed with all its leaves, you should expect to have some figs on there, mostly ripe or completely ripe figs. And he goes up there and there aren't any figs on this tree. And so he curses the tree. And this is important. He curses the tree and he tells it that it will never bear fruit again. A little while later, when the disciples came by that fig tree, that fig tree had withered and died. This is weird. Why would Jesus curse a fig tree? Well, it's important because what he's going to talk about that day when he interacts with the Pharisees again. He ends up telling them two stories. One story is a story of two brothers, um, a man, a farmer. He says to one son, he says, hey, would you go to the field and work for me? Just tend the vineyard a little bit. And the son says, no, I don't want to do that. I got better things to do. And then he goes to the next son and he says, son, would you go to the vineyard and work for me? And he's like, sure, dad, no problem. But then Jesus says that the first son ends up changing his mind. We call that repentance. Very simple. He said, no, I won't. And he changed his mind and said, okay, let me, let me go and do that. And so he went to the vineyard and he worked for his dad. Let's see. If you were uh, asked to do something by somebody that you love, would you be inclined to say yes and go do it? Yeah? When, when you know that they love you and you love them and they say, would you please, uh, I don't know, wash the dishes? Would you be like, okay, sure. <laughs> yeah, well, that's great. Well, I, I think there's something about love that makes us want to obey. And I'm not talking about like um, just obeying your parents, like husbands and wives. We interact with our spouses and sometimes they ask us to do things. And when we love them, we try to please them, right? And so this young man, he says no to his, his dad. That is not a loving interaction, but he changes his mind and he, in love, obeys. The second young man, he refuses. Even though he said, I'll go, in his heart, he never wanted to go. He's just talking with his mouth. He's got no intention. There's no love in his heart and there's no obedience in his life. And so he doesn't go. He doesn't work in the vineyard. The next story he tells is a, a farmer, a, a vine dresser, keeper, whatever, a guy who, who plants a vineyard. He says he, he made everything ready, and he did these really um, important things, like he put in a wine press so that there could be a production um, process there. He put in um, a, uh, a wall around the vineyard so that it would be protected, and then he leased it out to some people, and the price was some of the fruit. He just wanted a, per, a percentage of the fruit. And so when the time came, the harvest was in, the, the grapes would have been pressed, he sent his people to the vineyard, and he says, pick up what's owed me, right? And, and uh, the people that were in charge of the vineyard, the leasees, the, the people that were caring for it, they refused, sent them away empty-handed. He sent more. They beat them. 
And then he's like, you know what? They'll respect my son. And so he sent his son. And what did they do to the son? Kids, what do you think they did to that farmer's son? They killed him. Wow. Now, when Jesus tells, tells these stories, what do you think the Pharisees and the religious leaders were thinking? He was telling them that they are the second son, the one who said they would do God's work, but then refused to. And then he was saying that they're the bad caretakers, the leaders that are supposed to work the vineyard, care for the vineyard, and give God his fruit. I think that when the Bible describes the vineyard, it describes three different things. And you can see this in a variety of places. We're not going to spend a lot of time studying it. We just are using this as background for the real story in Matthew 22. But the, the, the three things that I think he's talking about is the vineyard of our own hearts. God expects us to tend our hearts, which means Jesus talking about it said that we should abide with him and allow him to abide in us. And when we do that, He says he'll give us his spirit and we'll bear fruit. And what's the fruit of our lives that God asks for us to give back to him? Love, joy, peace, kindness, patience, goodness, faithfulness, temperance, all these things. So those are the fruit that God expects for us to produce when he is abiding in us and we are abiding in him. And if we are not faithful caretakers of our vineyard, then he's going to have something to say about that. He says that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Keep in mind that in the vineyard story, the, the, the guy who rented out the vineyard, think about your own body being rented out to you by God. That's an interesting thought. But the guy who rented out the vineyard, he made every provision for the fruit to be produced. Um, all the people had to do is care for what he had already put in place. And the same is true for our salvation and for the fruit of our lives. God is the one that grows the fruit in our lives. But he does invite us to be caretakers and to give that fruit back to him as an offering of praise. The, the second area of Uh, the vineyard that we could look at is the vineyard of his church. He talks about us all as being on the vine, which is Jesus. And together we are the church on the vine. And what's the fruit that the vine is supposed to bear? Jesus says, you will know that they will know you're my disciples by your love for one another. And I think that that brotherly love is one of the things God asks us to tend and care for. And when we don't have the brotherly love in our church, we're kind of like those unfaithful servants, those unfaithful caretakers of the vineyard. And, and then the third area would be the vineyard of the world. God describes the world as, as his, his land, and it sa- he says it's ripe for the picking. Go out and pick it. Now, he doesn't tell us that we're supposed to um, grow the fruit. That's the Holy Spirit's job, but we should tend it. He talks about us being involved in the planting. Paul says he was involved in the watering of faith, but he says that, that God gives the increase. And that Paul also describes himself being part of the harvest. We ask people to follow Jesus and connect them to the vine. That's a responsibility of the church. And if we are unfaithful in taking care of that vineyard, then God's going to have some things to say. So these are the backgrounds of the story. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and he's saying, you are the unfaithful son, you are the unfaithful caretakers, and I am going to require this at your hand. There's an expectation God has that will bear fruit. That might be a sobering thing, but keep in mind, he has made himself responsible for the results. So this is Monday in the the last verses of chapter 21, verse 45 and 46. It says, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. The next thing that happens is fascinating um, because in chapter 22, it's like he doesn't even give them a chance to stop and, and argue with him about these parables. He just keeps going. There's another parable another example where he's going to compare and contrast a good son, a bad son, faithful or unfaithful tenants, and the expectation of faithful tenants. And, and now in chapter 22, Jesus says 
The kingdom, verses 2 and 3, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. By wedding feast, Jesus is he's kind of going a little bit farther than just a couple sons and their dad or a landlord and his, and his tenants, right? He's going deeper in intimacy. When you think about a father and his children, that's a close relationship, a loving, caring relationship. But it's a whole different story when you're talking about a wedding, isn't it? The, the relationship between husband and wife, bride and groom, is deeper in intimacy and closer than even a, a parent and their child can be. And I think that in our humanity, we try to appease God. And sometimes children try to do this to their parents. Uh, you don't want the parent to be angry with you, and so you are careful about what you say. Sometimes they do the opposite. They do want the parent to be angry with them because they get a response or something. And so, but, but that's different. There's, a, there's a, a feeling maybe in almost all false religions that God needs to be appeased, that we have to do something to win his favor. And, and a sacrifice in those cases, that's a, like a gift for God so that God won't be mad at me. But that's not how the God of heaven is. That is not how Jesus is. And he's trying to tell us in this story that he wants a deeper intimacy. Now, I, I know he's talking to guests coming to a, a, a wedding feast, but the Bible talks about us as the bride of Christ. And maybe it's just a little bit awkward to have lots of brides. And so he's talking about the church as the bride. And in this case, he's inviting guests to the wedding. But really, when he says guests, think about yourself not as just a participant, not as just somebody who comes to a meal, but as the, the bride who's coming to the wedding, okay? So just keep that in mind as we look, look at this story. Now, he sends out these invitations, and the invitations are sent to the people who should be coming to the wedding feast. Who goes to a king's wedding? Government officials, probably close relatives would attend, maybe some foreign dignitaries, probably some religious leaders with high offices, um, maybe some military leaders, people that have worth and value, right? These are people that, that are inherently um, supposed to be at these kinds of things, but they all reject the invitation. They say no. And so the king decides to sweeten the deal. He sends his servants back out and he's like, listen, guys, this is, this is going to be a wedding for the ages, verses four to six. It says, tell those who are invited, see, I've prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention. They went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully and killed them. What do you think is going to happen to these people? Right away, you should, be, you should be making connections between the unfaithful son and the unfaithful caretakers. These are unfaithful guests, unfaithful friends, people who not just reject the invitation, but kill the people who have been sent to invite them. Now, when Jesus tells a story, he's kind of telling a bit of history. When you think of the Israelites' history, God is inviting them, pulling them, dragging them any way he can, showing them love, and he sends his prophets to them. And what do they do to the prophets? Isaiah is purportedly cut in half in a log. Jeremiah is thrown into a well. They're hoping he'll die down there. Um, they, they scorned the prophets. They killed the prophets. They were not nice to God's messengers. But imagine this. It's your best friend's wedding, an all-expenses-paid destination wedding. Would you say no to that? Why would you say no to that? If, if your best friend said, I'm going to get married, why don't you come to Hawaii? I'll pay the ticket. We'll stay at a nice resort. I'll pay for that. There's going to be great food. I'll cover the expenses. And uh, you can even stay for a couple days after. Uh, while we head out on honeymoon, you can just hang out and, and vacation a little bit on my dime. Would you say no to that? Would you clear your schedule for that? Would you postpone an important business deal for that? I think most of us would. And Jesus, the, the, the thing that Jesus is describing is just so astounding that they would say no, much less kill the people who sent the message to them. 
And so what does the king do? Matthew 22, 7. The king was angry. He sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. And can you blame him? If my kids went over to my neighbor's house, um, they, they've been picking blackberries and selling them to the neighbors. So let's just say that, that they bring a bag of blackberries to one of my neighbors. And instead of accepting the bag of blackberries, the neighbor um, th like throws the blackberries out on the ground and then beats my kid until they're bruised and blackened. What do you think I will do? Am I going to just sit there and take that? No, I am going to rise up and protect my son, and, and I will defend my son, and I will bring the law down on them. And this is kind of what the king does. He rises up, not just in some raging fit, but as protector and father and, well, as the groom. He rises up to defend. There's, remember the story of, of the, the fig tree? What happens when the fruit isn't there? The fig tree is cursed. What happens when the, the caretakers don't bring fruit? Well, they're, they're cast out of the vineyard and somebody else is given responsibility over it, right? And in this case, they are uninvited. You're going to do that? Not only am I going to uninvite you, but if you killed my servants, I'm going to come and I'm going to do some justice in your town too. Look at Ezekiel 36, verse 22. When, when Jesus tells a story, he's telling the story of Israel. They rejected his advances, they murdered his prophets, and so he allowed the nations around Israel to gain power over them, to persecute them, and to take them out of their land, even to kill them. But he also had mercy on them. Ezekiel 36, 22 says, Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it's not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations, to which you came. And then verse 24, I will take you from the nations, I will gather you from the countries, and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and be careful to obey my rules. This is a promise of God after the rejection, after the rebellion, after the killing of his prophets. He still wants them, and he still pursues them and draws them to him. And I think that's what he's doing with the Pharisees. He's trying to put a mirror up in front of their face and say, look at how you're relating to God. Look at how you're relating to me. I only want what's good for you, and what you're giving back is awful, horrible. Please change your heart. Jesus is pleading with them. If you read chapter 23, it's done. Jesus no longer pleads with the Pharisees. In chapter 23, we call it the woes on the Pharisees, and he says some pretty bad things about their hearts. And it's only after these parables and this interaction on Sunday, Monday, and then Tuesday that Jesus, that the, the Pharisees double down on their desire to kill Jesus, and it's, it's over. He's, not, he's done pleading with their hearts because they have so hardened themselves against him that there's no hope of them returning. But right now, he's drawing them to him, just like he draws the Israelites and says, I want to give you a new heart. Go back to Matthew 22, verse 8. The next thing that the king did was he sent out his servants again. And this time it says that he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those who are invited are not worthy. Wait, aren't they the, the, the government officials and the relatives and, you know, all the people that are worthy, that have a responsibility that would make them worthy of being at this feast? But he says of them, they aren't worthy. Why aren't they worthy? They aren't worthy because they said no. They rejected the invitation that was given and that makes them unworthy. But he says, they aren't worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and, and invite them to the wedding feast, as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found. And, and notice the next words, both good and bad. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. Now, what makes the person worthy? Is it their title or their position? Is it their goodness? What makes the person worthy of this wedding feast that God is preparing? The invitation makes them worthy. All they have to do is say yes. When you reject the invitation, you've made yourself unworthy, not because God didn't see you as unworthy, but because you refused to accept God's advances to you. This is the story of salvation, isn't it? 
not one of us is worthy. None of us could ever be worthy. In fact, the Bible says here that he calls both good and bad. Do you ever feel unworthy of God's great gift? Maybe you even feel bad. Your goodness or badness does not make you worthy or unworthy. Your position in life doesn't make you worthy or unworthy. It is only the invitation of God that makes you worthy. And all you have to do is say yes to that invitation. Now, also notice anyone who accepts this invitation is considered worthy. Any, and the invitation goes to everyone everywhere. Every corner, not, not just the big castles, but, but every little byway, every little street corner, everybody is invited to come to this wedding feast. And I think this is where the real story begins. We don't know all of the details about how this works, but somehow when the people came in, the Bible says in verse 11, uh, there, there was robes that were given to these people. Now imagine if you were invited to a, a king's wedding uh, and, and you don't have a lot of nice clothes. Maybe the best clothes that you have is, uh, you know, some jeans and a t-shirt. That's the best you can do. And, uh, and so maybe you, recognizing the great honor of this banquet, you, you try to get some better clothes. You go to the thrift store and you find the best thing that you can get, right? Maybe you go to JCPenney's and you get the nicest thing that you can find. Maybe you spend, like, you take out a loan for as much as you can, can get, and you get one of these, uh, some Cartier jewelry and some, some special pumps, a, a, a fascinator for your head. You really do it up nice, right? You've got a gown by oh, some fancy designer, and, and you come to this wedding feast because you want to honor the king. You want to come in your finest. As some, sure, they came in their jeans and their t-shirt. That was the best they could come in. Um, some took out loans against their house, but everybody at the door was given a royal robe. Nothing special. I mean, as compared to the, the special thing that, that you spent your whole uh, um, life savings on, right? But, but it was nice, and everybody gets a robe. Everybody puts on that robe, except in verse 11, it says, when the king came to look at the guests, he saw there was a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Why was he speechless? Why, why didn't he have anything to say? I, you can imagine what might've been going through his mind. Uh, your majesty, your robe was so plain. Uh, no, no, that wasn't gonna do. Um, your, your majesty, I thought the clothes that I was wearing were bet. Uh, no, that, that wouldn't do. Um, your majesty, I know that you gave one to everyone. I just didn't think that you'd carry it. Well, no, it's pretty obvious he had one my size. Clearly, none of the things that he could have said made any sense. My robes were better. What? These were, these were robes made in the, by the king's own, own tailor. How could my robes be better than his? Clearly, he didn't have anything to say. And then in verse 13, it says, The king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot, cast him out into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. And what you find in each of these parables is judgment. There's the fig tree. It doesn't bear fruit. Judgment. There's the... The, the caretakers of the vineyard, they don't give the fruit back to God. Judgment. And then this is the, the, the expectation here. There's no fruit bearing. There's no labor required. It's simply a matter of accept the invitation. Put on the robe that's given. And if you refuse, judgment. You see the pattern? It's the Pharisees who are though that man who came into the, the wedding feast wearing his own clothes. Let, let's just think about this for a second. Judgment. Judgment is what happens when the king comes and looks around. Judgment is what happens when the king comes back to the caretakers and, and has the one-on-one -on -one with them. Judgment is what happens in the presence of the king. Now, if you're the king's child, do you need to be afraid? If you're the king's wife, do you need to be afraid? No, see, in fact, Daniel 7.22 says that judgment is made in favor of the saints. God is the one that brings judgment. And whenever God comes, it's a good thing, amen? Do you need to be afraid of judgment? 
No, unless you're the one person that says, I think my clothes are better than yours, God. And then you need to be afraid of judgment because God's going to look and say, you can't be in my wedding feast if you're not willing to wear my garment. So what does this robe represent? Turn to Revelation 19, verse 8, and there's a beautiful picture in Revelation 19, 8. It goes like this. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. What is the fine linen? What is the robe? The righteous deeds of the saints. There we go. Your robe is your righteousness. Let's keep looking. One more in Ephesians. Hold your finger in Revelation 19. We're going to come back there. In Ephesians 5.27, Paul says he's done a bunch of things so that he might present the church. Uh, Christ has done a bunch of things so that he might present him, the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. The idea of these pure robes is that it's righteous, holy, pure, undefiled by sin. But, but that doesn't sound right because Isaiah 64.6 tells us we are all like an unclean thing and our righteousness are like filthy rags. Did, did that say our sin is like filthy rags? No. We're talking about that person who mortgaged their house to buy the best clothing that was possible to come to the wedding feast. That, that best garment that you can bring, your best righteousness, your most holy works, your least defiled part of your life, that is filthy rags. My righteousness, your righteousness is filthy rags. Now with that understanding, and that may be a little bit of confusion here because the, the, the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints thing, right? Let's go back to Revelation 19 and let's look at the whole picture that it's given. Let's look in verse 6. It says, I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty, mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Alleluia. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready. What is this marriage of the Lamb? That's the same thing, the parable that Jesus was telling about the, the wedding feast. The same event is what's being described here in Revelation 19. The marriage of the Lamb has come. His bride has made herself ready. How has she made herself ready? And then it says, it was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. The, the bride, that's you and me. But it says the bride was granted. Is there something about being granted something that's different than like, the bride chose, uh, the bride did. That's different. No, the, the bride is granted. It's given to her. Do you, are you catching on? The righteous deeds of the saints are given to the bride. The king's garment in this parable is called the righteous deeds of the saints. And it's not the deeds the saints do that are righteous, because that's filthy rags. We already know that. No, this is, this is the special robe that is given at the door when you accept the invitation. This is the robe of Christ's righteousness, because the righteous deeds of the saints, that's the deeds that Christ has done and attributed to us as though we had done them. This is the story of the gospel, and such an amazing story. Uh, Ellen White says in Christ Object Lessons that the fine linen is the righteousness of the... the the robes that he gives them is the righteousness of Christ, his own unblemished character that through faith is imparted, granted to, to be clothed with all those who receive him as their personal savior. Christ's righteousness. Now, when you think about that, yeah, you're unworthy. You don't have any special title that would warrant God saying, you, I, I want you in heaven. But instead, he's simply invited you. And you come and you're like, I don't have anything to bring. I, I, I just have some dirty old clothes. And he's like, it's all right, I got a robe for you. This is a special robe. It's not just any robe. It's, it's a robe that's woven by the looms of heaven. And, and it's not just any tailor. Jesus himself was the one that stitched this robe together. And, it, and it's not just any robe standardized for everybody. No, this is a robe that I've made for you, just for you. 
The filthy rags of our own righteousness is an apt illustration of the fig leaves that Adam and Eve wore. They made themselves a robe of righteousness, and it was terrible. That fig tree that didn't have any fruit, that's our righteousness. It doesn't accomplish anything. Our righteousness, it falls so far short of God's glory that it's laughable that we would think it's pretty at all. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve brought their unclean attempt, their bad attempt at righteousness. And what did God do? He showed them a sacrifice that pointed to the Son. And from that sacrifice, he fashioned robes for them. And from the very beginning of sin, God provided the robe, the robe of Christ's righteousness. And it's never going to be any different. For all eternity, it is Christ's righteousness that covers our history of sin and that makes us worthy of being in the presence of God. For all eternity, we will rely on the grace of Jesus. Not until Jesus comes and then we'll be perfect and we'll be good by ourselves. No, for all eternity, we will be covered with the righteousness of Christ. Whose righteousness do you trust? Whose garment are you showing off? Your own good works? Or are you surrendering yourself and allowing Jesus to cover you with his righteousness? Philippians 3, Paul, he put himself in the place of the Pharisees. He said, if anybody has any reason for confidence in the flesh, this is Philippians 3, 4, I have more confidence. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. I'm not going to come to the wedding feast trying to wear my own righteousness, Paul says. I, I'll take that. I'll take those clothes off. Whatever I need, I'll, I'll accept Jesus. I count those as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Rubbish, filthy, are the words that can describe the most righteous deeds of Jesus' faithful follower who rejects the robe of Christ's righteousness. But to know Jesus, but that's worth losing it all. Just to gain Christ is worth the loss of everything else. You've been listening to In the Bible with Jason Worf. If you'd like to visit us in person, come on Saturday mornings to the Bonners Ferry Seventh-day Adventist Church located on Highway 95, just six miles north of Bonners Ferry. You can also find us online at bonnersferryadventist.org.